Hello and welcome back. It's been Yom Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, with Mishpachal's home front, covering Israel's biggest war in a generation. Hello to you, Yom Hello, Gedalian. The big story that we've all been focusing on is the very horrible, accidental killing of three hostages who apparently had hidden in a building, at least as the information that we have now, and had even written some words using some food on a wall or on a chart to indicate that they were Jewish and that they were in the building and ready to be rescued. And then they came out and they were unfortunately shot and killed by IDF officers. It's, it's just a horrible thing. Every Shabbos, we're disconnected for 25 hours from the news events and after Avdallah. So I turn on the news and I'm always hoping there will be good news. Maybe we assassinated in Sinmar over the weekend, or maybe we made uh, some other important gains, uh, either militarily or uh, politically. And basically we uh, turn on the news on Moshe Shabbos to see something like this. And uh, oh, it, it just makes one's heart sink. And when you think overall that there's been over 120 deaths now of soldiers and or hostages in this battle, and I'm talking about obviously since the 1200 that were killed on the opening day of the war, and more than 20 of them have been killed either by friendly fire or by accident. I'm not a military man. I never served in the armed forces either in America or here, but something has to be done obviously in terms of training so that these accidents are brought to a bare minimum. Yeah, when you know, this is an ongoing national trauma. We said again and again that I think everyone's doing this, turning on the news every morning and overnight there is a list of casualties and your heart goes out as you truly scan them. Do you know the names? Do you know the faces? Israel's a very small country. We have cousins, we even if uh, no one directly serving in the military. One of the horrible things that these families, the knowledge that their loved ones survived 70 days of captivity, they managed to stumble out of those rooms to evade Hamas and to stay free and to be hit by idea fire and the knowledge of what must be going through also the trauma of those people who've killed them, because what, what a thing to have to live with throughout your life and, and perhaps to protect your identity. One of the families of the victims has said, they're not going to forgive those who did it, not going to forgive the government who failed them on October the 7th and then failed them again on Friday. And in a certain sense, who can fault them. This is just, as I said, a national trauma. We're going through it. It's still the long drawn out agony of October the 7th. And it's also a sense beyond, I can't say it any other way. Can we not have a break as it were? And unfortunately, Hashem is saying, no, this is going to go through. It's hurting and it's going to hurt some more. And when this is going to end, I don't know. But the, the point is, I think we have to just take that moment to pause and think of what it means for people who are not just going to move ahead as the new cycle moves on. This is their private trauma, which is going to accompany them throughout their life. I just raised that because I can't help thinking that it's connected to the pressure cooker environment in which the IDF is now operating. Remember, it has now become very clear that the Biden administration is sending its aerial armada of administration officials to come and tell Israel that this stage of fighting has to come to an end. Meaning that within weeks, it's a question of three weeks, four weeks, whenever it is going to be, however much Israel can stretch it out, they're going to have to end the high-intensity campaign, as the U.S. are saying. And they're going to have to go on to something else, much more low-intensity. We'll talk about that a bit later. But note, the IDF knows that it has no way to stretch that out. It's not got a few months. It's not got six months that it needs to do the job. And yet, that's dynamic number one. Dynamic number two is not just the deadline, the ticking clock. It's also the fact that the IDF is now prevented in doing a southern Gaza what it did in north Gaza, which is flattening the place in order to save soldiers' lives. So they're racing against time and having to take far greater risks 
in that pressure cooker atmosphere, can we be surprised that tragedies happen, but that nervous soldiers open fire and all around them could be a threat to their lives? I think that is something to bear in mind. And that to me explains the terrible dynamic of what's going on over here with this sharp jump in friendly fires. So, so having said that, when the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from the U.S. comes to visit today, Israel has to be a lot stronger with him. They really act like yes men, if you will, when it comes to uh, the relationship uh, with America very often. And Lloyd Austin a few weeks ago made a comment along the lines that if Israel kills too many Palestinian civilians in Gaza, then they're going to be creating uh, the next terrorists. Now, this is obviously a, a very left-wing uh, type of statement that uh, the reason why you have terrorism is because uh, people feel hapless and people are impoverished. And in this case, that's not why. The reason why we have terrorism in Israel is because we have uh, forces who are trying to deny Eretz Israel to the Jews, and they will fight to the very end to do so. And it's very important to tell the Secretary of Defense Austin that his analysis is incorrect, and that maybe that might apply to some other conflicts. Maybe someone will turn to a, a life of crime because of uh, poverty or other reasons, but. In this particular case, this is a religious war. It's been going on for 4,000 years in one way, shape, or form or another, uh, between one clan or another, one tribe or another, and that uh, he has to think differently about this conflict than any other conflict. So uh, that's the first thing that we have to do. The second thing we have to do is to get the U.S. more proactive. So one of the reasons, ostensibly, why uh, Lloyd Austin is coming is to come up with some sort of uh, formula, some sort of coalition to fight the Houthis, or at least to stop the Houthis from bringing uh, shipping to a halt. In the Red Sea. In the Persian Gulf area, in the Red Sea area. So what uh, Israel has to do is they have to make sure that they hold, if they can, America's foot to the fire and let them know that, listen, we could take out the Houthis also. So either you can do it or we'll do it for you. I mean, Defense Secretary Galant said clearly yesterday that we're going to give the international community some time to work on this. If not, we're going to take care of the problem ourselves. And that is ultimately the best way of keeping the U.S. feet to the fire, as I've said repeatedly, is the threat that Israel is going to do a botched job simply because the U.S. won't do the thing properly. And again, what I spoke about last week, that the U.S. is telegraphing how timid they are. Excuse me, but why do you need an international coalition to take out one port in, in Yemen that the Houthis are firing from? I understand that the U.S. would like to get political support for what they do. But on the other hand, there are times that you just have to say, listen, we are the strongest military in the world and we don't like what's happening. You know, we've just fought a multi-year battle against inflation, if no other reason than that. And as a result of all the shipping delays and the rerouting, inflation is going to rear its ugly head again. So uh, we have to not only stand up uh, for our military strength, but we also have to stand up for the economies of the world. And we're going to do this ourselves single-handedly. Uh, I'm not sure why the U.S. feels the need to form a coalition and get support from lesser countries. You know, I'd like to let you just extend that point to what you're essentially saying is kind of strategic drift and timidness that you see extends into the thinking in Gaza. If we go back from the macro to the micro again, someone has to remind the U.S. what they themselves said just a few weeks ago, which is that Hamas's reign needs to end. Now, what they now say, U.S. officials spoke to the New York Times to say, the Biden administration envisions Israel transitioning from its large-scale ground and air campaign to one that would involve smaller groups of elite forces that would conduct more precise intelligence-driven missions to find and kill Hamas leaders, rescue hostages, and destroy tunnels. But to quote you, excuse me, 
this is the total shrinkage of those aims. Because if Israel ultimately doesn't hold the whole of Gazan territory at the time, then that means that the overlord will be Hamas. And therefore, any missions to kind of into precise intelligence-driven missions, this is not Mosul when you're trying to take out specific leaders. You're trying to purify and to de-Hamasify the Gaza Strip. You cannot do that in pinpointed raids. You need to control the thing, go house to house, destroy the thing, and then you can start to build from the ground up at that stage. What we're seeing now is this aim of the kind of much more narrow thing is the U.S., just losing the will to fight, losing the stomach to defend Israel in the international arena and let Israel finish the job and ultimately just guarantees that Hamas will be free to rebuild and to regroup. And as we see that, they already have aims far more grandiose than Let me just note that until a few weeks ago, no one had ever thought that the Mossad would need to foil Hamas plots in Scandinavia. This was the province of the Revolutionary Guards, the Iranians, the Hezbollah, perhaps. This is not the province of a little ragtag militia out of Gaza. And yet that's the point. The US and West have not understood that this is no longer a ragtag militia. This is a major terrorist army who have now got ambitions, global ambitions, and will threaten them as well. And so this is the kind of timid thinking that obviously will come into play, first of all, in Gaza, but ultimately come to roost across the West as well. Gedalia, the people of uh, the Western countries realize it. Uh, that's why uh, you take a look at Italy, you take a look at the Netherlands, you take a look at Spain, you take a look at uh, many countries around the world. Holland with Geert Wilders. Uh, exactly, and also in Argentina, that uh, more and more countries are starting to elect right-wing, uh, and in some case, what the media likes to call extreme right-wingers, to be the leaders of the country, because they instinctively understand uh, the threat to their homeland, something which the current brand of leadership hasn't seemed to have internalized yet. So the best way for them to internalize it is to see other countries go that route as well. And once that happens, then we might have a different world and we might have more support for Israel. I can only hope that's the, that's the case. And, and let's just move on to another item, which is very much making news, which was a report in the New York Times that a year ago, the Israeli government military hadn't had a complete attack land from Hamas and they did zero about it. And obviously that sounds very shocking. So one particular response I've seen was from a commentator I've quoted here in the past military analyst, Edward Lotwak, who was writing an unheard of British website. He said that the idea that this is not some bombshell in the sense that this is not some one-off event that they failed. It was a serial failure over years. And he said, but the fact is Israel is a reserve driven force. And calling out the reserve is really essentially a thing you've got to get absolutely right. And if you get it wrong, you'll just call out the whole army. The enemy won't attack. You'll stand down the army and they'll attack three weeks later. And then he said, he said, what, what could have happened over here? In which if the IDF had actually listened to that intelligence and actually sent a significant forces to the border, what would have happened? That, that the Hamas are perfectly aware of uh, IDF movements. They would have said, okay, no attack today. Wait till those forces move away. And then we'll attack. So the point here is that you have the idea that there was one pinpoint failure over here, as opposed to a mass multi-year failure is wrong. And that's why this is not particularly surprising. That's what I'd love to take on this piece over here. And Gedalia, more stunning to me was the uh, weekend report of the New York Times by Joe Becker and an investigative team that talked about how for years, both America and Israel shared intelligence about uh, Hamas's assets and how they were using those assets and income from those assets in order to finance terror. 
and no one ever did a thing about it. No one ever went in and tried to uh, stop them from having access to those uh, resources. No one uh, went through the banking system to uh, put sanctions on uh, any of these companies. And this is part of the uh, that we keep talking about. Netanyahu was asked about this in his Saturday night press conference. And he said that uh, the money that came to Hamas was for humanitarian causes, not for military. That's nonsense. I'm sorry. We see what happens with the so-called humanitarian aid. Every day there's pictures on the Israeli television stations of these aid trucks that come in through Egypt, sponsored by the UAE or sponsored by uh, the UN. And immediately they're hijacked. Uh, they're either hijacked by uh, Hamas gunmen who uh, ride with their automatic weapons on top of the trucks, or if they can't get there on time, they're totally ransacked by the people of uh, Gaza. So there's no such thing as uh, humanitarian aid going directly to the people. So I really don't know what uh, the prime minister was talking about when he said that. That's a question I'd like to ask uh, Jack Lou, the U.S. ambassador to uh, Israel, if we get the chance to interview him, because he was Treasury Secretary for many years, and he knows uh, a thing or two about uh, using the international finance system to crack down on terror. And it's just absolutely astonishing that nobody did anything about this. And again, this is part of what they call the conceptia. So if there's anything that I did understand about Netanyahu's answer was that he felt that somehow having money flowing in to Gaza or having Hamas in control of companies so that they can make some money would help moderate them. And we see what a failure that concept was. And this is something that's going to have to change also along with all of the other things we talked about earlier, Israel's attitude toward the U.S. and the U.S. attitude toward their use of military force in the Middle East. This all has to change. Otherwise, the world is going to become a much more dangerous place very quickly. Indeed, I just want to share with you a thought. And I know that you and I both had similar experience in uh, Kabbalah Shabbos time this week. I was in Bit Shemesh, you and Yerushalayim, we both got rocketed. We just got finished saying Bowie Chala, by the way, when someone ran and said, didn't you hear the sirens? Quick, run. So, I mean, you, you were there for a long, I was actually in transit still. I was going to a more distant shul and had to run into a building over there with a normal random collection of white-faced people because... It was, it came as a big shock to everyone because we in Beit Shemesh at least hadn't had sirens for six weeks now. And so ran in with a bunch of people to a random building over there. And there's this kind of 30 second wait. Remember that it's 90 seconds till it gets to Beit Shemesh. Everyone's slightly tense, looking at each other, maybe saying mumbling something, healing, whatever it is, and just waiting. And indeed what happened, the first thing that hit was unusual. We all knew that it had been an impact. The rocket hit maybe a kilometer away from where we were on the 10, which is what the outer ring road to Ramah Beit Shemesh. I think. We all know that there's this particularly unpleasant feeling in those seconds as you wait for it to go. And I was just thinking, there's someone shooting at me, right? There's someone out there, some sweaty Gazan in his undershirt underneath some mosque. That's if he's wearing an undershirt. That's who he is, correct. And he's actually aiming at me. And it's a very, very unpleasant feeling. But what I walked away with, you know, and I just want to share this news. It's something I've heard from Ramesh Shapiro at his yard site. So now I remember hearing this. It must have been before the Iron Dome came into action because he was talking about something. Remember, those were the days when Israel couldn't shoot down the rockets. And I don't know if you remember, you turn on the radio and they'd say that they fired at Steyrot, they fired at wherever it was, Ashkelon, and then it says, and then and the rocket fell in open space. And Ramosha Perez just said, this is a tiny country. There's no space to build at all. Where is all this open space that it keeps falling in? 
where is the Shatak Patuach? And that was his, he said, look, we're living in nature, so we don't realize what it is. And those words came back to me again because the, the rocket fell on the 10, which is again, just a few hundred meters away from the line of buildings that begin Armabit charge. And it could have so easily, an hour earlier, could have hit a car. It could so easily have been a few hundred meters to the left and it, it impacts a building full of kids, whatever it is, or people running around to, and, or a shul there. And so my sense is that when you think of that, that it's incredibly unpleasant. And obviously we know that there's thousands of soldiers in Gaza in far greater danger every minute going on. And there's Jews being stabbed in gas stations in the Shamrod, as we saw yesterday, and so many different things happening. Terrible news. And yet, the midst of that, we have to remember that the Hashem is also watching out for us. And we see things could have gone wrong in that thing. And remember those words of Ramesh Shapiro. Where is all that shetach patuach? We're living, we're living in ace. And so those words are a comfort to me. So, Binyamin, I wish you uh, and listeners everywhere a good day. I'm the source of